0: Welcome to the Ashram Podcast, made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management, to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. You can visit ashram.org, that's A-S-H-R-M dot org, slash membership to learn more and to become an Ashram member. I'm Bill Klaproth. This podcast is part of Ashram's Healthcare Risk Management Week. Learn more at ashram.org. Dot org slash resources slash hrm dash week on this podcast we're going to be taking a look at risk management in a rural hospital as we talk with tony and sarah administrator at south lion medical center tony welcome
1: good morning bill thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure and ashram has always been one of my loves so it's nice to be here
0: Well, I'm happy to hear that. And we're happy that you are here with us talking about risk management in rural hospitals is very important. And I know a lot of people are going to enjoy this podcast. So thank you for your time. So let's start with PPS. Can you tell us about the prospective payment system?
1: Absolutely. So the prospective payment system, it was established by Medicare and Medicaid as a result of the Social Security Amendment Act of 1983. The PPS, as we all know, we like to use initials in healthcare. It's a method of reimbursement in which the Medicare payment is based on a predetermined fixed amount. So, Medicare determined the diagnosis related group, they created that category, and they decided that they would look at that for payment. They were seeing a huge loss by paying by the fee schedule, as many commercial insurances did. And so they created it in 1983 as an attempt to lower their costs.
0: You mentioned uh, this is a diagnosis-related group or a DRG. You're right, we do like to use initials. So why are the diagnosis-related groups, or DRGs, why are those important in healthcare?
1: So the DRG system, it provided a framework for CMS to begin promoting, in their view, higher quality of care standards while being able to reduce reimbursement rates for them. DRGs were a diagnosis, and the payment would be structured using an average of a certain area so it allowed cms to understand what services would actually cost so for their budgeting purposes or their being able to determine what their costs would be projected for the next year they used that system for eliminating wasteful practices and duplicate payment so it was their way to try to keep the medicare medicaid system viable when they started seeing healthcare costs, especially in the 80s, increasing.
0: So there are pluses and minuses to everything, as we know. So then let's talk about that. First, let's talk about what are the benefits of PPS in healthcare.
1: So the biggest benefit is truly for the insurance. So it's for Medicare and Medicaid, and it allows them to estimate the amount of reimbursement for every service line and admission. If a patient was diagnosed with pneumonia and they needed an admission, the DRG or diagnosis-related group may say, okay, in the region that you are located, we will provide a 3.8-day reimbursement. So if the patient was well and was able to discharge home healed within three days, then hospitals would really make a 0.8 benefit. But if the patient was sicker, then the patient may stay for five days. And so it was a good tool for Medicare, Medicaid, but it really wasn't a good tool for the smaller rural hospitals.
0: So then what are the main disadvantages of a PPS?
1: So it's rural hospitals, the costs naturally trend higher. So often the DRG is set at an average for the larger urban facilities and the surrounding area. So this system immediately caused most rural hospitals to struggle.
0: So let me ask you this. You said in rural hospitals, costs trend to be higher. Why is that?
1: As understandable, we don't have often the commercial payer base. So a lot of times you're looking at retired or no pay or low insured patients. And often in rural areas, you have a higher complexity of a patient. So you're dealing with a sicker patient, and at the same time, you're providing the same services to a lower number of patients. So if you can spread the cost over 100 patients, the cost is naturally going to be less. But if you have to spread that same cost over 10 patients, the cost is going to be higher. And that's the way it's been done in rural hospitals.
0: Overall, PPS, in your opinion, from where you sit, is this really more of a plus or a negative?
1: For rural hospitals, it is a negative.
0: Okay. For the reasons you just stated. Okay. Correct. So tell us a little bit about South Lyon Medical Center.
1: So we are an absolutely 14-bed critical access hospital located in a beautiful agricultural valley. Our valley is known as Mason. We are located in the town of Earrington. Interestingly, we're one of the nation's largest onion producers, and agriculture is our greatest product. We are one of the larger employers, but the farms actually during harvest have more than 3,000 workers. So our population in our hospital district is about 17,000. And the hospital actually was built in the early 1950s using Hill-Burton funds. The area was found to have a large copper deposit, and the Anaconda Copper Company located here to mine that. When they came, they had more than a 1,000 workers. Healthcare became one of their priorities to ensure that their workers were covered. And so the, the copper company actually helped create this facility in the early 1960s. Prior to mm-hmm. that, our care was provided by a few independents, but most notably by Dr. Mary Fullstone. And Dr. Mary was one of the beloved and cherished providers and she provided healthcare in our area until her early nineties.
0: So you're in an area, the closest hospital to you is how far away?
1: So the largest urban hospital for us is probably like the Reno Carson area where they have full service and they're gonna be probably via travel road, not air, about 80 miles.
0: You really are, for your region, really an important health center.
1: We truly are. I can't imagine not having the facility. We think about if every single emergency resulted in an ambulance ride for miles. We are the only health care provider for outpatient services as
0: well. Okay, so let's talk about then how a hospital becomes a critical access hospital. How does that happen?
1: So in the 1990s, the hospitals continued to kind of struggle. And in the late 1980s, early 1990s, as a result of the PPS or prospective payment model, the nation started seeing hundreds of rural hospitals closing. So in response to more than 400 rural hospital closures, Congress created the critical access hospital designation to the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, It was given its own provider type by Medicare, and we have our own conditions of participation as well. The program directly aimed to maintain small rural hospitals that serve residents who, as we kind of discussed, would otherwise have to drive a long distance for health care. The designation changed reimbursement from the DRG model to cost-based. So each facility now is required to complete a detailed cost report annually, and then Medicare trues it up. The requirements of critical access, you have to have been established with Medicare before the law became. You have to be in a state that has actually allowed the designation of a critical access hospital. You have to be located more than 35 miles from the nearest hospital, Or interestingly, 15 miles in areas where you have mountainous terrain are only secondary Mm -hmm. roads. So 15 miles if you're on a dirt road, and we have a lot of those here. So we are only allowed up to 25 inpatient beds, and we can only have our patients here on an average throughout the year of not more than 96 hours per visit. That's one of the difficult provisions of being a CAW is making sure that if you admit a patient, they are there for 96 hours or less. And we have to guarantee that we will always furnish 24-hour emergency care.
0: So your emergency department is open 24-7?
1: Yes, correct.
0: And that, I'm sure, is a large expense as well?
1: Absolutely. We average... 10 patients a day through our emergency room, but we have to maintain the same staffing, the same supplies and equipment as if we saw 100 patients a day. So again, we're kind of looking at that cost spread over 10 patients instead of 100 patients but the hospitals we have to have a physician on call and within 30 minutes in our instance our physician has a apartment or a little apartment inside the hospital so they are always on site we have to always have a registered nurse on site the good thing is that the nurse can work both the ER and the hospital side So if she's not busy, she can help in the hospital. Laboratory and radiology have a 30-minute response time. So our lab and x-ray are on call from 7 at night till 7 in the morning. They are to be here within 30 minutes.
0: So Tony, I know a lot of cause converted in the early 2000s and you converted in 2016. So, first of all, why did you convert and why didn't the hospital convert sooner?
1: So, interestingly enough, the Electronic Healthcare Record Incentive Program in 2011, again, Medicare and Medicaid was part of the program to encourage facilities to convert to electronic records. The program, referred to as Meaningful Use, provided financial incentives to eligible professionals and hospitals. They wanted to implement, upgrade, and demonstrate meaningful use of the EHR technology. So, just converting wasn't good enough. There were very high standards. The incentive payments provided for prospective payment hospitals and critical access hospitals were significantly different. So, the critical access hospital designations allowed smaller hospitals to receive, again, cost based reimbursement. So, they would reimburse a hospital that converted to critical access the cost of the EHR system. It did not include the whole implementation and training costs. So we were really struggling with how to pay that. That's millions of dollars. The incentive program for prospective payment system hospitals included a ladder structure for a three-year period that if you met meaningful use. So that ended up resulting in payments to us of over $5 million, a difference of probably $2.5 The system cost about $2.5 and, and we were able to see another $2.5 that we could use for training and other implementation, as well as operations. So we made the decision to stay PPS as long as we were still seeing a higher benefit from the Meaningful Use Program, the incentive payment program, then we would see from being cost reimbursed in our inpatient hospital. So it was definitely a deliberate decision and was done every six months to review. Once the incentives were paid, then we looked in 2016 and we converted to a critical access hospital.
0: Okay, got it. So then looking back over these past years since becoming a CAW, how has it helped the facility?
1: Without a doubt, it has kept us viable. We struggled in the 2011 to 14. That was one of the most financially difficult times for the facility. We had a change of administrator we had a change of our billing practices, and we converted to critical access. So there mm-hmm. are all these changes that definitely affected our reimbursement and just even our billing practices. So critical access, now we have seen the benefit of probably 40% higher revenue by being faced. And we are now struggling to come out of the pandemic, but we now are able to not make a profit, but at least remain viable for our community.
0: So can you talk more about the challenges of operating a car? And you also mentioned the pandemic. Can you also talk about the effect the pandemic had on your hospital?
1: Absolutely. So challenges of operating a car, being located in rural areas, I mean, education, race, and rurality have a dramatic impact on patients with healthcare needs, and rural populations often have older patient populations. We have typically a higher rate of substance abuse and mental health needs and a greater burden of chronic diseases. Patient adherence and compliance is often very poor. Coordinating specialty care is very difficult, and a lot of times, even if you can get a patient referred and established with a specialist cardiologist or urology in one of the larger urban areas, a lot of times the patient has great difficulty even getting there. So low patient volumes, many residents now travel outside of our area for employment, education, and health care. So according to analysis in 2019, the year before the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Medium operating margins were only one and a half percent in rural hospitals compared to more than three times that rate, five point two percent among the larger hospitals mm.
0: that's a big difference and then the pandemic, as I said, you've mentioned before, it sounds like that really had an impact on you
1: We struggled, I think, as any hospital and because a lot of the times older hospitals we have older staff, we saw an immediate retirement by some of our older, more tenured staff. There was so much unknown and there was a lot of fear, trepidation with it. But we saw a dramatic, over a 60% drop in our utilization beginning in the March and April when the nation saw the lockdown. Critically ill patients coming to the emergency department were, for the most part, transferred to the larger hospitals. So keeping patients in our hospital We are not designed to have true isolation rooms. And again, there was so much unknown about the disease in the beginning that they were immediately transferred to a hospital that had more treatment options. As the pandemic developed, I think that then we became more comfortable being able to treat and keep our patients here. But the environment of our hospital not having negative air rooms affected our ability to keep inpatients in our hospital. And there was a large panic in the population as well. And so as the pandemic kind of progressed, we started seeing more and more patients. And I think it was typical of the time. Sadly, we were actually seeing and screening patients in the parking lot, which now seems so sad.
0: So coming out of it, Tony, now that it's you know been deemed officially over, are there lingering effects or do you see kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel now that we're out of it?
1: I think that probably both of those might be true. I think the light at the end of the tunnel is that people are kind of getting back to normal. But one of the dramatic changes we have not been able to overcome yet is utilization. So utilization, I think that it became easier for patients to either drive 80 miles to healthcare, as it became more custom that we didn't keep patients in our hospital. You know, it became more of a known fact. And so they would just drive themselves to the larger urban hospitals. And so overcoming that, and then returning to utilization, that will help us support the viability of the facility.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that viability of the facility. You said earlier your operating margins were, you know, 1.5 percent in rural hospitals compared to more than three times that rate for larger urban hospitals. That's really got to be tough. That doesn't give you a lot of room for improvements or upgrades or recruiting. Can you talk about the challenges that South Lion Medical Center faces today?
1: Staffing. Staffing is truly one of our biggest challenges. Nurses, I mean, we all have heard for many, many years that we are in a nursing shortage. And as the shortage was become more complicated during the pandemic, we now rely more on traveling nurses at a cost of three times what we would normally pay. So that has had a dramatic effect on my annual budget as well now over almost... Three quarters of a million dollars just for nursing, though, to stay all of our facilities and being able to recruit healthcare providers. If you aren't really interested in this way of life, I mean, it's kind of a special person that wants to live in a rural area. We think it's beautiful and amazing. But when you recruit a physician and they think it's wonderful, there's wonderful hunting and hiking and fishing and beautiful that. And then the family becomes involved and the wife will say, well, where's the shopping? So challenges, especially recruiting the younger. And for the most part, even if you look at physicians going into family practice or even rural emergency, they're definitely looking at more specialized careers, not just the family practice, take care of everybody from birth to death.
0: So now that we've talked about the challenges and other things. Can we kind of switch gears? What are the benefits of providing rural health care from what you see?
1: Generally, rural communities, we have lower stress. We have cleaner air and more privacy as far as sense of space within your community. I think that we offer a more relaxed pace of life for many of us. Rural providers, they have the ability here to care for families that they've known forever. And the providers then in turn actually become an important family member of the patients. It's not out of line at all to have a gift given to the physician, you know, whether it's eggs or produce or a card. Here in rural, there's definitely a sense of worth that's exhibited many times a day being in unique rural. One of the challenges kind of that we have, but events of working in rural. In October of 2007, we actually had a migrant farm that was exposed to chloropicterine. and it's a nerve agent. It's an organic compound, and it's used to fumigate and fumicide soil. And mm-hmm. so we actually had the planets all aligned correctly, and there was an inversion in the weather, and the gas actually did not dissipate into the atmosphere as it had predicted, and it actually exposed 156 workers in a field nearby and we saw them all and it was amazing that the staff we could do it and within two hours we had treated and ended up only hospitalizing a small handful so kind of the rural area that we're proud of being able to do that the community is supportive of us for that we're i think in touch with our community a lot more than a rural facility we had a farm worker recently that died from a bee sting, and they were working in a field. And as a result of knowing that and having firsthand knowledge, we were actually able to train the safety officers in those farms and have them now so they carry EpiPens. So I really believe that we're a closer family. We truly are family here, not just
0: a healthcare provider. I would imagine there's more of a sense of community.
1: Very much so. We offer, as small rural, a lot of times we offer definitely a higher medical staff to patient ratio, so the there's a personalized care.
0: So let me ask you this, Tony: When you see or hear of rural hospitals disappearing across the country, what do you think? What are your thoughts when you hear that?
1: It's tragic. Because I think in the larger urban areas, usually there's even options. Patients have options. In rural areas, there aren't options. And a lot of times people label us a Band-Aid station, and I wear it proudly. We're able to stop the damage from a heart attack and get a patient transferred to a large area within 22 minutes. We can stop the devastating damage from a stroke. We can definitely stabilize a hip fracture and get that patient safely and relatively pain-free to a surgical center. If the rural facilities are no longer, then those patients truly, the only option is for generally a volunteer ambulance service. And once an ambulance has a call and they take that patient, they're out of the valley for Mm -hmm. three hours. So now you have this gap where there truly could be no health care.
0: Which is really scary.
1: Absolutely.
0: So from your seat, you live and breathe this every day. Is there a fix in your mind to help us sustain health care in rural populations? Do you say, you know, if we just did this, we could keep these cause or have more around the country to provide better health care access? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I really think it keys to reimbursement. I think that the critical access model of being cost reimbursed is spot on. Now, that's Medicare and Medicaid. If you go to the Medicare Advantage insurance providers, they are definitely difficult to work with and don't pay at the same rate as Medicare. So Medicare is doing cost they're trying to make money being a contractor for Medicare and so we struggle to be able to get cost from a lot of the Medicare advantages. but it's reimbursement. It's making sure that we aren't overregulated and overburdened. the unfunded mandates that we see often, whether it be reporting or a mandate to upgrade, Our 1953 facilities to a higher level of building code, a lot of times we can't do that without money. And even though we're a hospital district and we are supported by tax, the tax is basically enough to make sure we can keep our ER open.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that information it is an interesting look from your perspective on what we need to do to help our critical access hospitals. As we wrap up, Tony, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. When it comes to risk management, what it looks like in rural hospitals, anything else you want to add?
1: It's interesting because I was actually hired and became a chipmunk in 2006 after working many years as risk manager. As the emphasis became more on risk management and the importance of risk management, I think it took a few years longer to really get becoming meaningful in the rural areas. So in 2006, I was the CHIPRAM and have embraced that education and we have seen dramatic improvement in risk reduction activities by embracing enterprise risk management and ensuring that we can reduce the risks before they ever become something that could be litigated or could be harmful to patients, so I became administrator in two thousand thirteen and I always say it's proof that God has a sense of humor because I think if anyone in working in risk management, I think I said daily there's not enough time or money to do that thankless job and so I've been here since two thousand thirteen. I am still the risk manager, hopefully I have found a gal that I am training and will be a great access. But risk management is now, I would put it right under financial viability, important at different facets that it actually helps maintain the healthcare viability as much as finance.
0: Absolutely. It's a good way to put it and then think about it. Well, Tony, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
1: You are very welcome, Bill. Thank you for this opportunity.
0: You bet. And join the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management in celebrating HRM Week, June 19th through the 23rd of 2023. This annual event held in the third week of June is the time to show your appreciation for healthcare risk professionals in your organization and your community. For more information, visit ashram.org slash resources slash HRM dash week. You can also visit South Lyon Medical Center at SLMCNV dot org. In addition, Ashram is accepting nominations for the Ashram Healthcare Risk Management Professional of the Year Award. Just go to ashram.org education risk management dash award. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social media channels and check out the full podcast library for topics of interest to you. I'm Bill Klaproth. Thanks for listening.